Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. How do you and your family choose what to eat? What do those choices mean to you and what do they say about you to the world? How does the runaway inequality of American society structure how families eat? Priya Fielding Singh's new book, How the Other Half Eats, tackles these difficult topics through up-close accounts of how Bay Area families make their food decisions. It's an empathetic, fascinating book that uses real-world experiences to question many prevailing notions about why some people eat healthy diets and others do not. She'll join us to describe her research and answer your questions after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This book, Priya Fielding Singh writes in the introduction of How the Other Half Eats, is about feeding families and the weight that bears on parents from all walks of life. It is based on 75 in-depth interviews with Bay Area families, as well as even deeper ethnographic studies of four particular mothers. And you have to appreciate an author who says at the end of her book, this research made me angrier. We're going to channel that in this hour. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Fielding Singh. Hi, Alexis. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me, why did this research make you angrier? This research made me angry in a, a number of ways, but I think the the one that I'm referencing in, in the book that you pointed out, um, that anger came from just seeing through my conversations with families, through my deep observations of families, how much responsibility is put on particularly mothers, when it comes to feeding children, feeding families healthfully, and how little social and structural support mothers have for doing that very important, very labor-intensive, and very high-stakes work. Um, It was very clear through my time with families that mothers felt like it was really all on them to make sure that their kids were eating a nutritious diet, and at the same time, you know, the deck was really stacked against them in a number of ways um, that I go into in the book, including the fact that there's incredible amounts of targeted marketing at children to get them to want and ask for unhealthy foods. There um, is very little time to prepare healthy meals. And there is the kind of forever frustrating fact that on a calorie basis, it's cheaper to feed kids less healthy food than more nutritious food. So there were a lot of barriers that moms were facing. And I just saw through the time that I spent with them, 
how little support they had for for overcoming those barriers. Yeah, not only no support, but outside pressure, not just from corporations, but from the sort of societal expectations about what mothering is supposed to be in a modern American context, particularly if you would like to be upward mo- upwardly mobile or already kind of upper middle class. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, we have this idea in our society that it's mother's sort of inherent role, inherent talent, inherent responsibility to feed children. And what we know from national data is that in four out of five uh, married heterosexual couples with children, mothers are the ones who are primarily responsible for that task. And that task, um, you know, as with many things that women do is, is pretty devalued, but it's also something that is just extremely laborious. It involves thinking, planning, shopping, navigating food allergies, navigating preferences of different children and and spouses. Um, It involves cooking, it involves cleaning up, it involves so much work. And, you know, when I listen to these broader discourses in our society about how everyone should just get back in the kitchen and start cooking more, and that it can be cheaper to cook a meal, versus eating out, I just think about how all of that labor really gets overlooked and swept under the table as if it's a really easy thing to do. But, you know, I learned from from the time that I spent with families that it's anything but. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the kind of research that informed this book. Um, you spent a lot of time with four families in particular. And what did, how did you actually spend time with them? I noticed on one page of your book, you kind of snoop through every pantry, <laughs> uh, kind of pointing out what was on shelves. And you kind of have this constant kind of running um, totals of sort of what it is that people are eating and, and how. What was that kind of research like and how much time did you end up spending with these families? Yeah. So the research happened in two stages. The first involved in-depth interviews with 75 families across race and class in the Bay Area. I ended up in every family I spoke with at least one parent and one child. So I'd had about 160 interviews Mm. that gave me a sense of kind of what you're talking about, like how families were eating, what that looked like across the board. And I realized very quickly that while those interviews had involved observational components, as I you know interviewed families in their homes, I really needed some in-depth ethnographic data to make sense of what people were saying and, and really how they were acting. So I chose four families um, that came from really different backgrounds, had, had very different means um, and, and whom I had already interviewed. So I knew that they, um, they were interested in being a part of the project and I knew a little bit about their, their diets as well. And I asked them if, if basically for a few months I could just come and spend time with them and hang out with them and, and learn more about their lives. And um, it was really important to me that I didn't just come by the house when it was dinner time or, you know, around a structured mealtime. I would go and spend anywhere from three to six hours with families at a time. And sometimes it would be, you know, during, during what we would say like off hours, like uh, two to five. But the, the thing that is so Um, amazing about food is that it's really omnipresent. There are so many small moments in a day when food pops up, whether it's, 
you know, a snack on the way home from school or, um, you know, the treats that are offered at a back to school night. Um, and so my goal was really just to spend as much time with families as I could and really understand how the food they were eating, the choices and trade-offs they were making around food fit into the broader context of their lives. We're talking with sociologist Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America, and the struggles that all kinds of families face in eating a healthy, nutritious diet and also feeling good about what it is that they're feeding to their children. We'd love to hear from you extending this research a little bit. How do you feel about the diet you're feeding your kids? Give us a call. Share your experience with us. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter and Facebook, uh, KQED Forum, obviously Instagram as well. Or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Dr. Fielding Singh, what what was the core question that you were trying to answer with all of this research? Like, where in the sociological realm did you feel like, okay, this is where I'm going to make my mark? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting because I think the questions that I started off asking for the research, they're a key part of the book, but the book ended up being about so much more. Um, But the, the core thing I was interested in is, why is there a dietary gap between the most and the least privileged in American society? So we have a wealth of epidemiological research that shows that there's this nutritional gap um, between, for instance, rich and poor in the United States, where over the past 20, 30 years, um, wealthier folks in this country have started to eat a healthier diet, whereas there have not been the same nutritional gains for um, less well-off families. And and it's important to note that there's actually really room for improvement across the board, like the American diet on average is is not great, Um, but there is this really durable and and there are signs that it's a widening gap between rich and poor. Mm. Um, And I personally had felt kind of frustrated with the explanations that had been circulating about why we have this dietary gap. And the primary explanation that I think many listeners will recognize is the food desert argument. So this idea that became really popular in the 2010s, um, largely as a part of Michelle Obama's Let's Move campaign, that we have nutritional inequality in this country, and we have um, you know, differences in obesity rates because of food deserts or neighborhoods where there is a dearth of supermarkets. Mm-hmm. And this explanation around just geographic food access always struck me as too simple. Um, and, and by that, I mean that the kind of solution that comes from that argument is that all you have to do is open a supermarket in a food desert and you will fix the nutritional gap. Like we will see people's diets improve. And and in fact, what we've seen over the last five to seven years as policymakers and scholars have worked to open supermarkets and food deserts, what we've seen is that that does very little, if anything, to improve residents' diet quality. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason, I mean, there's a number of reasons, but, but one big reason is that We've actually made a couple of assumptions about how people make food choices 
that just aren't borne out by the research. So we've always assumed that people who live in food deserts have to shop and do shop at gas stations or convenience stores. But what we actually know now is that 90% of food dollars in this country are spent at supermarkets. And food desert residents are more likely, are just as likely as anyone to go to a supermarket to buy their food. And so what happens when you open a supermarket in a food desert is that people just go from buying food at a supermarket further away to buying one, buying food at the closer supermarket, but it doesn't actually change anything about what they're buying. They're still buying the same potentially unhealthy foods. And so, you know, just this feeling and and mounting research that I was seeing about the kind of inadequacy of the food desert explanation made me want to go and try to figure out what else was going on. And it was very clear to me that a really key way to do that was by actually talking with families and observing families and seeing how they made those choices on the ground rather than making assumptions. Um, And one thing that came up in my research very clearly was that among the myriad challenges that parents told me they faced when it came to feeding their kids, geographically accessing food was actually not one of the top ones. Um, other things like affordability came up, but, but food, geographic food access just isn't the answer. Wow, it's so interesting because that did become such a dominant part of the discourse around food. Just one of the things that I found really surprising and illuminating in your book. We're talking with sociologist Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. And we'd love to hear from you. This is a pretty provocative argument for some people in the Bay Area. What questions do you have for Dr. Fielding Singh? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. How do you feel about the diet you're feeding your kids? Get in touch now. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with sociologist Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. Before the break, Dr. Fielding Singh was kind of demolishing the idea of food deserts or geographic access to healthy food as being a primary driver of unhealthy diets, uh, which may be surprising to some listeners out there. And I, I wanted to ask ab- about like the implications of that. One reason people liked the food desert argument was that it provided this kind of structural arrangement to why 
people sometimes ate unhealthily. It basically said, well, you know, we have this structural problem of there aren't these supermarkets. If we put them there, that's a structural solution. There's, there's, that's what it would take. People want to do it. Did you worry that by going after the food desert argument that you might be seen as blaming people for the food choices that they were making if those choices were in fact unhealthy? Yeah, I did worry about that. And I do worry about that. Um, and I, you know, as a sociologist, as someone who thinks in terms of structures and systems, I really like that about the food desert argument that it moved the conversation away from blaming individuals to talking about the structural forces at play. Um, but what I think that the food desert argument has done is that it's, um, it's kind of shifted our focus away from the other structural issues that are working to uh, make it hard to eat a healthy diet. Um, and I, I wanna kind of raise two points. So one, um, I think that the fact that we have areas with low geographic food access, which we do, food deserts are a real thing. Um, it just doesn't mean, just because something's real though, doesn't mean that it is the driver of a particular type of inequality. But, but the fact that food deserts exist, tell us something about disinvestment in certain neighborhoods, about different types of discriminatory residential segregation. Like they give us a lot of insight into um, a number of issues that we need to be addressing. But the way that I think about food access is I think about food access as like this necessary but insufficient mm -hmm. prerequisite to having a healthy diet. Like we can't expect people to be able to make nutritious choices if they don't have geographic food access. But even if we put supermarkets into every food desert in this country, we would not close the nutritional gap. Mm -hmm. And that's because there are other really pressing inequities that families are facing that shape the way that they think and they feel about food. And those thoughts and feelings to my mind and to my eye on the literature have really gone undiscussed. But the argument I'm making is actually still really structural mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it's talking about how, for instance, if you can't afford housing for you and your child, if you can't make a living wage to where you can give your kids the things that they ask for, then it's going to be really hard to feed them a nutritious diet. And so I'm still talking in structural terms. I think I'm just bringing to light, one, different structures, and two, how those structures really make their way inside people's thoughts and feelings in ways that have implications for, for dietary choices. I also just want to note, your book actually speaks quite broadly to these problems, not only on the lower income income scale, but also on the higher end, which I'm sure that we will get to. Um, let's bring in our first caller, uh, Catherine from Novato. Welcome. Oh, hi. So you, I had two comments, and they're kind of related to what the caller was just talking about. The first one was you'd asked how we eat. And we're what, we, what you would call a nourishing tradition family. We are tied to the Weston Price Foundation. And so we eat in a way that our ancestral ancestors did. We soak our grains, we eat fermented foods, we source our, a lot of our meats from farms and our dairy from farms. Um, you know, we, are, we eat bone broth, all that good stuff. That's an enormous undertaking, which mm -hmm. 
as the mom, I'm 90% responsible for all of that, even though I also have a career. And that's a massive undertaking. But the part that the systemic piece around the inequality around food, I do feel like it has a lot, it stems a lot from our own governmental food policies. We, as a country, we only subsidize corn and soy and sugar. So we, that's the crap that goes into food and that's the food that is the lowest in lowest cost. And therefore families who have to make choices between paying their rent or mortgage or buying food, they're going to have, they're going to choose the lesser quality food because it's less expensive because it's made out of soy, corn and sugar versus someone like me who has the ability to source out organic, sustainable, you know, farmer-raised right. food. Right, right, right. right. It's time-consuming. It's time-consuming, time and it's also expensive because our government will, has chosen not to support the farmers who do regenerative farming, who do organic, who produce produce. I mean, we don't even support our produce farmers. And so that all gets passed down to the consumer and an individual who is barely making, you know, their minimum wage is 20 mm. years old and is that has certainly not kept up with inflation. You know, they can't afford that kind of food. And that, well, Catherine, that's let me ask you this. Of it all. I, I want to throw some of these uh, questions to uh, Dr. Fielding Singh in a second. But I first just wanted to ask you, because it's a big part of her book, how do you feel about all the work that you're doing to maintain this? That I thought I heard you just get tired just describing it for a second there. <laughs> It's a lot of work, but I also have really healthy kids. I have kids who have incredible palates and, and, and you know, they, they have a, a keen understanding of where their food comes from. You know, for Thanksgiving, we went up to the farm, our, the farmer that we sourced some of our poultry from, and we got our turkey and the turkey got named and, you know, they went and saw the piglets because they that had recently been that were born a few months earlier. And, you know, so they know the we they know where their food comes from. They watch how we prepare it. They they recognize when, you know, when they eat junk, when that they're, you know, maybe their friends consider healthy and we don't. They notice a difference in how their stomachs feel like they've got great palates. But it's mm-hmm. an it's an enormous yeah. undertaking yeah. when and it's an enormous undertaking on top of having a career. So you have the kids and the management, not management, but the, the relationship building time with kids. Sorry. And our dog. And um, <laughs> yeah, and, well, let's th- thank you. No, this is this has been great, Catherine. I, I want to give Priya uh, a chance to uh, respond to some of these things. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine. I there are so many things that you mentioned that really resonated with me and and with this research. I appreciate you for one bringing in um, a discussion of governmental policies and you know corn and soy subsidies and how it's kind of distorted our sense of um, price when it comes to healthy versus unhealthy foods. And I'll I'll add in just the you know beyond kind of the price differences. Another issue with all of this processed food is that it's also really 
engineered to be delicious. Yeah, that's and... what I was going to say. All that cheap <laughs> stuff has brought all the innovative capacities of the United States onto these things. Yeah, exactly. The food and beverage industry spend so much money making sure that this food is, you know, delicious and not too satiating and um, something that will really create, especially in children, lifelong customers. Um, and something else that I noticed in my work was that especially for low-income families, um, you know, having those treats on hand, those foods that there's kids loved and asked for was, you know, one of the few things that they were able to give their kids on a daily basis. And so processed food, especially things like Cheetos, Doritos, Oreos, you know, had a had an important place in um, some low income families diets, because um, these treats really offered low income parents an opportunity to say, say yes, yes to their kids. Right. Yeah. yeah I, that was one of the most fascinating components was this idea that food was this access, uh, accessible luxury, basically, that you wouldn't always be able to buy them concert tickets or new clothes or whatever, but you could buy them a Frappuccino. Yeah, exactly. It's like one of those few things that's, it's, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it's pretty cheap. Kids always want it. And it's a surefire way to bring a smile to their faces. Um, food really held kind of a unique place within this landscape of having to say no to your kids. Food was one of those few things you could say yes to. And it it was a way for parents to show their kids love and also to show themselves that they were competent caregivers who could not just get their kids what they needed to get by, but also get their kids some of what they wanted. Mm -hmm. Tara, listener Tara writes, thank you for your research. I have always been astounded at the discrepancy between the diet of poor families compared to the diet of well-off families. It's ironic that the more processed a food is, the cheaper it is. I don't have a large budget and have to take care with fruits and vegetables. Whole Foods is out of reach for many. This brings me to a point that preventative economics is not a priority in our capitalist society. Diet is so key to brain health as well as mental and bodily health. Thanks for that, Tara. And Kenneth from Benicio, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. I just wanted to say, because uh, I have a lot of experience with this in, in schools, is one of the biggest things we could do if we really cared about all this is actually uh, make changes in our schools. Because just like this last year when the federal government or even this year is subsidizing food for families, the food that's being given is not generally what you would want and is not anything what we're talking about. So the biggest place for change is actually to get to your schools and make the changes there. And Kenneth, let me ask you, what role do you play with food preparation in your own house? And how, how do you see that responsibility uh, being split up between you and, and anyone else who might be caring for children in your family? Um, for me, I have a garden in the back uh, for a simple thing that I do every year is people throw away pumpkins. So we take them, we feed them to our chickens, we keep the seeds, we make them. So even without having any funds, I'm getting free pumpkins to do that. So I try to show them, you know, every opportunity that what we're eating is what we want. But at the same time, for me personally, going through a divorce last year, I actually needed to eat that subsidized food from the federal government and for my children even this year. And it's really not the greatest thing in the world, but it's not going to kill them. But it's actually training them to eat this food for the rest of their life and be consumers of crappy food which we should never be serving in our schools. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Dr. Fielding Singh, what do you think about the role that schools play in 
shaping children's diets? Yeah, Kenneth, I'm so glad that you brought up this point. I actually write a lot in the book, especially at the end as I'm talking about ways forward about the power that schools have and about how, you know, some of the best interventions we can do at this point involve starting with kids and the next generation because kids' palates are in formation. Kids are learning about food. And this is really an opportunity to teach them about food, to expose them to different foods. And, you know, we have in this country a food program in schools, like a lunch and breakfast program that um, to date has not really been the most nutritious, not as nutritious as kids and families deserve. Um, and there are a number of reasons why that is um, that I, I won't get into too much right now. Um, but my vision for our school system is that we will have a universal school meal program that has food that is, first of all, delicious <laughs> and nutritious and culturally appropriate and can help to expose kids to different fruits and vegetables, because we know that it takes at least five to 10 exposures. And personally, as a parent of a toddler, I would argue maybe even <laughs> 500. more exposures. Yeah, about 5,000 <laughs> exposures um, to, to actually get kids to be comfortable with different tastes. And so why are we putting all of that responsibility on parents? Why yeah. don't we put a little bit, at least, of that responsibility onto some of our institutions. Like we depend on schools to educate and nourish kids and why can't food and nutrition be a part of that? So I am, I am totally with you and, and that's a vision that I would like to see uh, implemented in this country. You know, turning uh, a tiny bit here, I mean, one of the things that I think is in the background of this conversation or many conversations around food is thinness and, you know, fatness and this desire uh, to keep children thin, not only for their health, but because in your book, you see so many parents seeing their children's weight as a reflection on their parenting. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's really hard for parents to disentangle like a thin body from a healthy body. And while I, I do think that that parents myself included, like care about the nutritional content of what kids are eating, weight is often kind of the metric that's used to evaluate whether parents are doing a good job and whether their kids are eating the right or appropriate amounts. And any parent knows, you know, when you walk into a pediatrician's appointment with your child, one of the first things that's done is that your child is weighed, their height is measured, and you are shown whether your kid is in the normal BMI range. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of judgment and a lot of, um, you know, shame on parents' part when their child falls with outside that range. And I'll also add, because it's important, that some parents are given some of the kind of leeway around that, whereas other parents, particularly low-income parents, parents of color, um, face additional weight and judgment for any deviations from the norm for their children. Mm -hmm. So for parents who kind of are, their parenting is, is 
put to the test every time they walk into that pediatrician's office, every time their child is weighed at school, um, you know, they don't want to be seen as bad parents. They don't want to be judged for their kids' bodies. But that's kind of what we have. That is the this, this setup in our society. And so that adds another weight to um, the already laborious work of feeding kids is also really trying to make sure that their weight is seen and they are seen as normal. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, people have so many of their own issues about their own bodies that those things are clearly getting <laughs> mm-hmm. entangled as well with the idea of a healthy diet and what a healthy child looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. You also had an amazing moment early in the book where you talk about something that a nurse said to you about feeding your newborn, which was, let's see how good of a job mom is doing. And you could just feel in the book <laughs> your blood temper, your blood pressure rising even as you wrote that line. Um, because it does, in the book, it is really, really was striking to me uh, as dad how little of a role you see men playing and how little responsibility in particular you see men taking on for this, for for the feeding. Maybe they cook, but they're not responsible for feeding the child in that same way and in the judgments that come along with that. I'd love to talk about that uh, after the break. One couple of uh, listener comments first. Uh, Sam writes, really enjoyed enjoying the discussion about food. I read The Omnivore's Dilemma, and I'm thinking about the chapter about processed food. The author explains that the large food companies are trying to eke more profits out of their products, and so are engineering food with that mindset, not with the mindset of it being healthier and more nutritious. One other story. A listener writes, I try to limit the processed foods my kids eat to eat whole wheat bread, pastas, and mac and cheese. I sneak in veggies when I can, like adding spinach to their mac and cheese. My kids eat salad because they see their parents eat salad. I avoid having chips, cookies, and other high-sugar food in our house. When my kids want snacks, I cut up fruit, make them a smoothie, give them carrots and hummus. The challenge for me is less about money and more about the extra time. Indeed. We're talking with sociologist Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with sociologist Priya Fielding-Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats and the Struggles that All Kinds of Families Face in Eating a Healthy and Nutritious Diet. wanted to ask you about that gendered component, again, just because it was so, it was amazing to me that you never found a single mom, 
not one mom in the whole thing who felt really great about her fam- how her family was eating. And that just kind of blew my mind. What are the components of that, that everyone feels like a failure, the most privileged, richest people, the middle-income people, low-income people, and across races and ethnicities? Yeah. Well, in the book, I introduced this really sociological term um, called the ideology of intensive mothering. And this term, this ideology refers to a set of beliefs in American society about what makes women good mothers. Um, And these are beliefs about um, what good motherhood is that that are held really widely across society. Like we think that good moms are child centered, they are, um, you know, really focused on providing as much labor as possible towards their children. They are self-sacrificing. They spend all their resources on their kids. So we have this kind of idea about what a good mom is. And what I found in my research was that, you know, even as moms maybe critiqued some ideas, some parts of this ideology, a lot of moms really bought into the idea that that's what being a good mom is. And that's how they should be focusing on their children. And that's why, um, you know, moms felt guilty about when they were working or about when they were doing things for themselves, because we really idolize this image of um, mothers who are self-sacrificing and really child focused. And and food is a really, really big part of that. Um, we think about, oh, yeah. Sorry. What's the alternative to intensive mothering. Like in the book, there's never, because we don't get anyone who's like, yeah, I have a right relationship to the food I feed my family. Mm-hmm. I, I, I found myself wondering like, well, if not this, then what? Because a lot of the things sound not just intensive mothering, but as intensive fathering, I I was like, yeah, those things, I, I understand why people feel this way. But what's the way out of that? Yeah, well, first, <laughs> I don't think that kind of, individuals can can work their way out of it because these are really like widely held beliefs. But what I think of as an alternative to intensive muttering and kind of this definition of what a good mom is, is a definition of a good mom where some resources, many resources are devoted to children, much time is devoted to kids, you know, but but also that mothers are themselves whole people, you know, that they're not completely defined by their role as mothers, that it's okay for mothers to also take shortcuts, you know, mm-hmm. when it's, they're too tired to make their kids a homemade meal that we as a society say, okay, that's reasonable. Like, you know, you can't be expected to do everything all the time for everyone, but yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that all moms were living up to the standards, but they felt like they should be, and they felt mm-hmm. guilty when they weren't. And so, you know, even, for the most privileged moms who I spoke with, the moms who had the time and the money to get their kids exactly what they, you know, what they thought they should be eating to prepare those meals from scratch. Even those moms would point out to me areas where they felt like they were falling short. Like, you know, every so often my kid eats a bag of Cheetos or I buy them Frappuccinos or this or that. And, you know, I think that that there's just so little slack for moms in our society that like they were made to feel judged and guilty about kind of any slippage from perfection. Um, And that is what I see as kind of the problem because perfection is it's unattainable. It's unrealistic. And it just sets moms up to feeling like they're always falling short. And that's a really hard way to live. And it's a really hard way to parent. 
you have a quote, which I wrote down here in my notes and probably underlined four times in the book. Uh, quote, wealthy moms dealt with their deep-seated worries about what their kids ate by worrying even more. Um, kind of around this sociological term of upscaling, like continuing to um, try to do more when things were already kind of going okay. Let's bring in Lacey from Sonoma. Oh, hi. Yeah, I'm just calling. I really appreciate what was just said about women and being a mother and the pressure that's on. And I was just calling because I think it's really important that, like, our best is good enough, like, and we don't have to go out and, like, collect turkeys or, you know, we can find that middle ground where our kids are well-fed and we don't, we can find economical ways to introduce vegetables and frozen vegetables and it doesn't have to be laborious and we don't have to be perfect at it at the same time. And I know that, like, I also want to acknowledge that um, food is, like, weighty, like, it's loaded. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I, I did my best to feed my kids healthy, but, you know, there was time when, they didn't feel like they had enough junk food. And, oh, Mom, brown rice again? <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, I don't want to eat salad. And it's just like, it's okay. I'm just going to still serve it. And we're also going to have ice cream. And I just kind of strove for that balance. And that's oh, all I'm going to say. Well, and Lacey, it sounds like you found that balance for yourself. Like, you feel okay about it. I do. I feel okay about it because I did my best, you know. And also yeah. as a single mom on a budget for a long time. So mm-hmm. I did my best. And I think that as women, we can hold that space for our kids where we can integ- We don't have to make them happy. We don't have to work super hard to make sure that everything's perfect for them. We can just do our best. Yeah. Hey, thanks for that, Lacey. Do you want to re- respond to that, Priya? Yeah, I really love that way of thinking about it and that viewpoint. And the other thing I want to bring in is just that like amidst doing our best, amidst moms doing their best, like there is so little support (laughs) for doing our best that I think it's like important to talk about that too. That like we think about this as something that like moms are solely responsible for and they're making choices about what to prioritize. They're making decisions about trade-offs. But there's also like a very aggressive food and beverage industry that is targeting our children all Mm -hmm. the time and Mm -hmm. targeting us when we walk into the supermarket. I have this part of the book um, where I talk about a trip that I took with one of the lower income moms that I observed, Dana, to the supermarket. And I saw, you know, her kids respond to the marketing on the sugary cereal boxes and I saw how there was marketing both for children, but, you know, to, to entice them, but also marketing to moms to placate them into thinking that this food was, was still nutritious. And we have a school system where low-income kids go into school and they get two meals that aren't necessarily nutritious each day. And there are just so many kind of cards stacked that, that, that stack the get deck against mothers and yet we still think of it as mom's job and we still think of it kind of as their responsibility to make sure that kids eat nutritiously when everything about our food environment is actually guiding us away from nutritious choices 
Man, one thing I took away from your book is that dad's got to step up on this, myself included, in, in terms of bearing the weight of what it is to have a nutritious and healthy diet, not just food on the table. Because there's, you have an incredible chapter about the added stress that dad's being like, oh, it's fine, I brought these chips home, uh, has on moms who've been uh, working hard or, or other kinds of partners who've been working hard to maintain a good diet. Yeah. I, I really just personally appreciated that. I, I wanted to call attention to one other part of the book where you talk about sort of the transition of immigrant diets into sort of like American diets. We know a lot of stuff about that transition. One of the main things seems to be that people start eating a less healthy diet when they go from the kind of home country foods to American foods. Yeah, absolutely. So, right, what you're talking about is um, it's called dietary acculturation. And it's the you know process by which immigrants in, in the United States begin to eat "Quote unquote more American," which unfortunately just means eating more I mean junk food, um, <laughs> more yeah, hamburgers more and pizza, yeah. more processed foods, yeah. versus some of like the um, more traditional cuisines, like whole based, whole food based, um, you know, recipes and and meals um, from earlier. And in the book, I I talk about how you know dietary acculturation um, is is something that immigrant parents struggle with. Um, but, you know, there's there's one way to see it as like this purely negative thing, that this thing that parents should be pushing back against, like stopping their kids from eating, um, you know, the the Lay's potato chips. Hot and Cheetos. I found oh. Hot Cheetos. So, <laughs> so much Hot Cheetos. Um, and I found that, you know, it was really a, a point of tension for immigrant parents, like who wanted through food, through cooking to pass on so much to their children, like to pass on a sense of identity of where they came from, to pass on recipes that they wanted to stay with the family. And so immigrant parents fought hard to make sure that their kids had those meals and those foods. At the same time, a number of parents who I spoke with told me that they also wanted their kids to succeed in this country and to become American. And part of that was also the food. And, you know, I, I, I talked to some parents who told me that they, they wanted to make sure that their kids also ate American food because when they sent their kids to school, they didn't want them to be bullied for eating, you know, food that was unrecognizable or too different. Um, and they themselves as parents, you know, worked hard often making barely livable wages. Um, and they also wanted to eat American food as like a treat, as a reward for an incredibly hard life and struggle in this country that often had not kind of given them what they had hoped for. And so there's all of this kind of part of dietary acculturation that I think often gets missed, which is this kind of emotional part of what it means to move to a new place with very little support and to want your child to succeed and to want to enjoy your life. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a part of dietary acculturation too. The class components in this book are fascinating, particularly around upward mobility. I mean, I think another thing like thinness that sort of lingers throughout the whole book and throughout these conversations is a c cultural cachet 
of food. I mean, I still remember being in New York at 19 years old, being kind of a bumpkin, and saying the cheese Jarlsberg, Jarlsberg, is how you're supposed to say it. I remember saying <laughs> Jarlsberg and being like corrected and just like absolutely mortified. You know, this <laughs> idea that you're supposed to know all of these foods and, and particularly here in the Bay Area, knowing the right foods is a kind of class marker. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, one thing I talk about a little bit in the book is like Whole Foods has really become this class signifier for mm-hmm. a particular kind of consumptive ethos and lifestyle. Um, and so, you know, food has obviously not only um, nutritional value, cultural value, but also has really potent class value Mm -hmm. and what you eat and where you shop says all kinds of things about you as a person and as a parent. And, um, you know, those meanings, those class meetings really are also a part of the story of why families eat the way that they do and why they choose certain products over other ones. It's about what those products signify, what they signal to the outside world about, about who you are and about what you, you know, what resources you have. Right. Not just how much sodium is in it, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, let's bring in Joshua from Oakland. Welcome to the show. Yo, uh, I have a question about schools, but I just want to notice like two things really quick. Like, firstly, it's, it's just it's just crazy that like food is genderized. That's, that's crazy. And then uh, my other notice is that like I remember as a kid wanting to seem American, I really wanted frozen pizza. <laughs> and like to this day, I'm still like I still Jones and I see frozen pizza. It's not delivery; like it's DiGiorno. Yeah, right. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, my question is about like if if like I can imagine that in schools we we have like a, a nutrition kind of curriculum or something like at some point health class like involves that element. And I'm wondering from the expert how do you how do you do that in a school like a public school system without like stigmatizing or shaming people's like you know, home culture and class and personal mm-hmm. identity with the Cheetos they got in their backpack? God, it's a tough question. Dr. Fielding Singh? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. But but really fast, I just because this gender component has come up so much, and particularly around dads, I do just want to quickly say that, that, you know, what I found in my research is that, like, dads on a really broad level did care about how their kids were eating and wanted their kids to be healthy, but they just didn't see it as their responsibility and their job to make sure. So that that really added this. But that's even worse. <laughs> it is worse, but it's also it also suggests to me that like the values, the broad values are there. What needs to happen is they need to be mobilized into actual work and to actually taking some of that off of mom's plates. But I think we'd actually be in a worse place if dads themselves didn't care about their children's diets, because then we'd have to start by convincing dads that their kids' diets and health matter. But I think we're actually largely already there. But what we do need is a deeper understanding on the part of of men and and fathers in particular um, about how much work this is and and what they can be doing to take some of that work off of mother's plates. so I just wanted to to kind of toss that out there since this has come up so much. No, I mean, um, I think it's a big part of the book, though. I think it's good yeah. it came up. I mean, it's it's an important com- part of your findings. Yeah. Yes, and it's an important, um, you know, addressing the gender disparities is a really important part of the solution, too. Um, as far as schools go, I share your concerns about 
how do we design a nutrition program or, you know, some sort of educational curriculum around food that is inclusive and diverse and non-judgmental. And I think that each school will need to think about, well, actually, no, I actually think we could do this on a broader scale Mm -hmm. because we don't necessarily need to create a curriculum that's like catered towards the, the particular, you know, student body in any school. We could create a curriculum that is aimed just at fostering nutritional knowledge about a range of cuisines and traditions and cultures that we are exposed to globally and in this country. Um, I think that there is a problem, and I write about it in the book, about kind of the association of healthy food and thinness with whiteness and how we glorify certain foods that are coded as white, like kale, and we demonize or don't consider as nutritious really nutritionally comparable foods (laughs) like collard greens that have been associated with black culture. And so I think that this is a problem that you're, that you're raising that um, our understandings of what makes a food healthy are not just about the nutritional components, but are also about our classist and racist associations with certain foods. And so a nutritional curriculum that, that is going to actually foster the health of children across society is going to take that into consideration and, and to my mind, actively combat that and how we talk about different foods and what a healthy diet is in the broadest terms. We've been talking with sociologist Priya Fielding Singh about her new book, How the Other Half Eats, the untold story of food and inequality in America. I'm telling you, it's very good, and it's got lessons for just about every one of us out there. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Fielding Singh. Thank you so much, Alexis. It was great to be here. Yeah, I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of the calls today, but I appreciate everyone who called in. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.